could, I'd like to ask for your attention again for some considerations on practice. Uh, about 10 days ago, I believe I spoke on the topic of the Sampajanya, of the four commentarial interpretations of clear comprehension. And um, sort of in a backward way, I'd like to actually look at this tonight from the perspective of the suttas, what the suttas have to say, the, dis the discourses of the Buddha on uh, this um, teaching called Sampajanya, those four clear comprehensions. Let me start with the term. Um, that's not difficult. Janati means to know. Pajanati means to know thoroughly. It's a, um, accentuating or a, an emphatic prefix, means really know through and through. And sum is a, again another prefix, which means basically together. So knowing things in a thorough and through and through way that how they come together. Yeah? This some interesting uh, movements in these prefixes. The sum prefix does generally this kind of movement. It gathers, yeah? it takes together. And the V prefix, or at least one of their one of its meanings, is distributive. So so going through something but distributing. Vijnana being separative knowing and Sampajana being knowing things together. Now this term is slightly, it's not quite clear at the first glance what it actually means. What we do note is it, it seems to turn up time and again together with sati. In fact, most of the, the, the situations where you come across the term sati, the term sampajanya is actually not very far. It's one of the things that um, sometimes go wrong when we elevate mindfulness uh, nowadays. Uh, mindfulness is rightly elevated, but not really without its friends. And uh, at least two of its good friends are mentioned in the Satipatthana teachings time and again. And uh, I cannot, cannot help but see that some of its friends are neglected. You know, when the praise of mindfulness is sung, usually some of the friends are standing out in the rain. So I'd like to give really some weight to those friends who are standing out in the rain. One of them is uh, this quality called Sampajanya, which uh, has been established as an English rendering, clear, co clearly comprehending Sampajano as an adjective or Sampajanya as a noun. And the second friend that stays out in the rain is a quality called sometimes diligence, sometimes keenness, sometimes something like ardency. It's atapi, it speaks of heat. Tapas is heat, both the heat of your application to practice, but also the heat you generate through your practice. You know? Tapas, uh, an old Indian word for somebody who practices hard is a tapasin, one who generates heat. This is an interesting term, isn't it? It sounds almost dangerously close to passion. Uh, and in fact, it has more than a cursory similarity to passion. It speaks of a, a degree of ardor in which we pursue a keenness in which we make, uh, in which we apply our minds. And 
these two friends, both the clear comprehension and the ardent nature of our pursuit, are always flanking sati. It's interesting. And obviously, in the context of Buddhist psychology, it makes a lot of sense. We're not just encouraged to passively be in a sort of dissociated way, aware, basically, mentally, of what's going on. We have, coupled with that capacity to know what's going on, we also have um, an energy that is capable of more than just passive observation, an energy that is capable to engage, an energy that is capable to actually intervene, an energy that is capable to transform, an energy that doesn't let up if no immediate good feelings are coming out of our uh, practice. Yeah? In other words, an energy that is capable to be in there for the long haul. So sometimes we feel, yeah, I'm practicing mindfulness, and then I expect, you know, good feelings pretty soon. If I'm practicing well, it means I get good feelings. But that is not the case at all. There is no guarantee that if you're practicing well, that you get good feelings. Absolutely not. And the reverse conclusion is even wrong, is even more wrong. Namely, that if you get not good feelings, that you by inference must be practicing wrongly. Um, I think this is a great challenge for meditators who have actually access to some good feelings and who know that practice can feel good and that the mind can feel pleasant states and uh, pleasant qualities can arise. Sometimes we believe only when this happens is our practice okay. The Chinese tradition has a, a rather sobering saying that speaks of the the sweet fruit on the thorny bush. Yeah. So sometimes our practice does not feel good. Yeah. And still our practice may be right on the spot. It may be perfectly appropriate. It may be highly skillful. It may be completely endowed with right view and still it does not feel good. Yeah. We do not have guarantees that it feels good. There are other conditions that bring about the feel-good factor. If the feel-good factor becomes the criterion of our practice, um, we're likely to, to get stumped very quickly. We can't possibly feel good, even if we practice well, continually. For a variety of reasons. A, bodies don't tend to feel good all the time. Then B, some of our feeling good has to do with being gratified in our self-views, being validated and corroborated in our approaches, in our thinking, um, then our outside lives are often not in our control. That means many, many factors that can contribute to our well-being or to our lack of well-being are not actually directly connected with the quality of our practice. There is something slightly infantile and completely understandable at the same time in us just wanting to sit here and feel good. Yeah. It's a legitimate, <coughs> albeit slightly immature, take. I mean, who doesn't want to feel good? I want to feel good, you know, honestly. But if I wait that my practice is supported by just feeling good, then I may be missing out on a tremendous 
opportunities. I may also misjudge the quality of my practice. I may find that the lack of feeling good um, takes away my inspiration, takes away my motivation, takes away my intention. Yeah. So I put myself at considerable risk if I just want to feel good. While it's nice feeling good and while it's certainly inspiring and while it has a healing quality and um, I tend to think you all deserve this and I wish you, you feel good. Um, I'm also clear that some of the things we practice when we say practice mindfulness may be tremendously useful and transformative and empowering without feeling good in themselves. So sometimes you just sit there and the mind is wild. You know? There's a charge there and we wrestle with things or it doesn't want to sit still, it doesn't want to stay still. It's, it's like riding a tiger and it doesn't feel good at all. And yet I, I keep at it. I practice returning to my anchor. I practice non-reactiveness. I practice patience. I practice structure and discipline. I practice non-judgment. I practice being my friend in all of this. And this is all very useful and none of this really feels particularly good. Yeah. <coughs> so, sometimes, you know, we don't have declared ideologies, uh, but we still have expectations. Uh, we don't have political programs that say, yes, I believe Good practice brings good feelings. If it doesn't bring good feelings, you must be doing something wrong. Maybe you're not holding this as an explicit ideology. But maybe there's a kind of niggling little voice which says, well, I've been practicing long enough. Where are my good feelings? You know, universe, you owe me. And if the universe doesn't cooperate, then we sometimes just pull away. Say, okay, universe, you're not helping, then I don't play long. I'm just walking out, enough of this, time for a beer now, or I just go away, or I go a little depressed, or I start rifling through my bookshelves and say, okay, Dzogchen, maybe that's an idea, you know, yeah. or something else, you know, Irish diagnosis, or Sufi, the path of the Sufi, yeah, or something like that, or there's plenty of great things out there, one could, uh, one can start to fantasize about if one is uh, stumped by the lack of gratification uh, in one's immediate meditative pursuit. So that's where Sampajanya comes in. We have a number of references to Sampajanya. The, I gave you the commentarial one with the four domains of Sampajanya, goal, purpose, and then approach, skill and means, and then the main, you know, what actually are you doing? What is your formal practice looking like? And second part, how can I not waste time in the situation I'm in? How can I turn the situation into a practice situation? And finally, the last one, which is mostly to do with an understanding of impersonality, the not losing my head, not losing my heart, not losing my humor, uh, because I am aware I cannot get it right with those sampajanyas in the first go. So there must be some space for me to not get it right. There must be some space for me to be allowed 
to fail. In the Satipatthana teachings, in the discourses of the Buddha, the reference to Sampajanya invariably occurs in the body section. It occurs in a section referring to um, bodily activities. Let me read you a few. I printed it out so to do justice to the Buddha rather than to go off memory. So one, uh, probably the best known definition of clear comprehension occurs in um, a range of the Satipatthana teachings, most notably in the two or in the three Satipatthana suttas we have in the Pali. And how monks is a monk clearly comprehending? Here he is clearly comprehending in walking to and fro, practices clear comprehension in looking ahead and looking aside, he practices clear comprehension in bending and stretching, in using his robes and bowl, in eating, drinking, chewing and tasting, in excreting and urinating, in walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, clearly comprehending in sleeping, waking, speaking and being silent. In all these forms he practices clear comprehension. Yeah? That's probably the most famous one. So what we can infer from this is this is not formal meditation, isn't it? It's not sitting upright, having my eyes closed in a meditation hall. Some of this is here. Um, yeah, sitting is mentioned, so it could be, but speaking, urinating, tasting, chewing, drinking, eating, using one's robes and bowl, in other words, you know, cutlery and plates and so forth, in bending and stretching, these are not generally understood as being formal meditation practices. This sampajanya, this wisdom in activity as a Thai a contemporary teacher calls this, speaks of how to make our meditation practice mobile, how to take it out of the meditation room. And engaging with this practice while we speak, while we're silent, while we wake, while we sleep, while we uh, go about our business, while we move, and so forth. That makes a lot of sense, isn't it? Um, in, so way, in, in that way, we can understand his Sampajanyas to be something like the behavioral foundation for meditative practice. We learn to practice what in one of my talks about 10 days ago, I saw I referred to as Kaya Bhavanas, development of the body, development of bodily behavior. I mean, you all do that. As far as I can make out, I see you mindfully walking up and down this corridor and coming in here as quietly as possible. And uh, I see you uh, eating with appreciation and devotion. Some of, some of you have seen eating with such careful and seemingly appreciative attitudes, your food. So I see some of this happening and uh, know that you are completely canonical with your attempts. This is not just a sort of IMS habit or this is not just sort of 21st century retreat center demeanor. This is uh, clearly encouraged as a form of mobility in our mindfulness practice and in our practice to bring meditative awareness into every activity of our lives. A 
second definition we find uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya, very in a similar vein. Here, Ananda, a monk is mindful as he walks to, he is mindful as he walks fro, he is mindful as he stands, as he sits, as he lies down, mindful as he sets to work. This, Ananda, is a mode of recollection when developed and made much of, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. That's an interesting one, isn't it? So, the moving, and you understand, much of our meditation practice is actually, um, we're slightly fixated to the sitting. This is, uh, seems to be a, a, a Western phenomenon, this, that sitting seems to have more weight than walking or standing or, or even lying down as a practice. Lying down, I can understand that it's not very popular because lying down, you know, we do a lot of, we sleep while lying down. And in some way, uh, generally we tend to sleep in our own rooms rather than publicly. So it makes us somewhat isolated. It's difficult to create a situation when we all lie down and practice meditation, you know, because we associate that uh, with things, doing things alone in our room. Um, and then the proximity to sleep brings its own dangers. Yeah? So sometimes the lying meditation is so relaxing that the gentle snoring starts to fill the room, uh, as we have probably all experienced in uh, other meditative settings. But uh, there is still a distinct um, difference between how often I see people practicing walking meditation and standing meditation. And yet these are completely canonical postures. Somehow, Many of us feel that the ideal meditative posture is the sitting, eyes closed, no movement, minimum sensory impingements. And in some ways it is ideal. It gives us the maximum stability, maximum inactivity of bodily uh, functions, and it allows us to close the eyes, meaning our most dominant sense, our visual sense, is not being fed or only fed uh, minimally, you know, with your uh, green and orange circles on the closed eyelids or so. And in some way, that becomes the epitome of meditative practice. I just to tell you, this is not necessarily the case. In Thailand, where some of my uh, practice has happened, uh, I was surprised to see that the larger part of meditative development, particularly in the forest tradition, is uh, deemed to happen on your Chongrom path, on your Chankamana place, on your walking meditation path. That has probably something to do with climate. Um, forest monasteries often have very beautiful, long and meticulously kept walking paths. Yeah. Some of them are broad and some of them are not so broad. Generally they're in a shaded area that makes it pleasant in the heat. Um, the mosquitoes get less at you if you move gently forward and backward. Uh, you're screened from public vision. That also gives you a seclusion of physical uh, aloneness, which is helpful. Um, if you happen to be a monastic, then you may be living on one meal a day, which tends to be sometime in the morning. And because you don't tend to eat a lot less just because you eat once a day, you tend to eat a sizable kind of meal, which then needs to be digested. And sitting 
uh, is maybe not the ideal posture to digest a big meal. So uh, there are many reasons that this walking is developing a very powerful and fluid type of attention that in many respects resembles our everyday situation a lot more than the sitting form does. Yeah? The degree of control we have in sitting is often not mirrored by the degree of control, stability and sensory um, restraint we can manage in our everyday life. That means that our sitting type of attention cannot be kept up in our everyday life. While our walking type of attention, this kind of mobile, fluid uh, quality of attention that has a higher resilience against sensory impingement, would actually be a lot closer to our everyday lives. <coughs> when we used to learn things by heart, we found out very quickly uh, Western monks generally are not very gifted at learning things by heart because they have read books and you know they've spent enough time in front of a TV and if you want to learn things by heart this is all quite ruinous you know your ideal sk skill set for learning things by heart is a you start at the age 10 um, then you best spend your puberty in a monastery then even better you don't read any books you learn to train your mind to actually recall oral things and then you rehearse these oral things. So that would be your ideal scenario for learning by heart. Uh, I do need to uh, add not much more to tell you that most Westerners who come to start learning by heart, and as a monk you would learn by heart parts of your monastic discipline, particularly a sequence called the, the, the Rules of Your Discipline, which is a small book. It's basically, if you're going full speed, it's about three quarters of an hour's recitation. And a few other things. You learn chanting, so there's lots of stuff to be learned by heart. And uh, most of us were not actually very gifted in that because our cultures hadn't really laid much emphasis on learning things by heart. You know, some of us may have learned a few poems by heart and we knew a few songs by heart. And some of us had learned a few Monty Python sketches by heart and other, you know, life-saving things. But basically we weren't really coming at this from a long tradition of mnemonic athleticism, yeah? So learning by heart is a challenge for Western folks. And one way we found is easier if we move when we learn by heart. Yeah? That we get into a motor activity and connect the motor activity with the cognitive attempt to fix something in our minds. So rhythm is important, movement is important. And it was very quickly obvious to us that it's not just easier to learn things by heart in moving, uh, it's also easier to then recite things, even when we stay sitting, after we have learned this stuff by heart in moving. Because if you learn to move and you, you get used to the recitation takes place while other things also happen, your eyes keep seeing things and bugs cross your footpath and trees are losing leaves and you have sensations in your feet and the breath comes and the dragonfly flies around you and snatches a few mosquitoes. This kind of thing prepares you for restless monks while you have to recite in a group of monks. Monks who clatter with their spittoons or monks who fidget around or monks who are impatient or monks who cough and sneeze and this kind of thing. Monks are not always quiet and 
nice and supportive. So they have to be there when you recite this every fortnight. So this is not fun all the time. So, you know, because there's many of them it may get a little more noisy than you would prefer when you try to scratch your head and recite this thing because there's a guy opposite you who has a book and make sure that you're not just word proof but that you're actually sound proof. Yeah. So we found out if we learn to stuff by heart in walking, our resilience to little noises and movements and the presence of others was a lot bigger. Yeah. I think that translates one-to-one into the fluidity of an everyday attention that we can transport from, say, walking meditation much more easily into our everyday life than from sitting meditation. So Sampajanya, as the wisdom in action, as Ajahn Buddhadasa says, has also another interesting definition. Outside of the Satipatthana context, and I want to read that to you, we are taught that Satipatthana is referred to and which monks is the development of concentration that when developed and made much of leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. Here monks, feelings are known as they arise. Feelings are known as they endure. Feelings are known as they vanish. Perceptions are known as they arise, are known as they endure, are known as they vanish. Thoughts are known as they arise. Thoughts are known as they endure. Thoughts are known as they vanish. So we now have Sampajanya clearly in reference to things that have nothing to do with body anymore. Things that have to do with mental phenomena, uh, with Vedana, uh, with the affective flavor or the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experience, and with cognitive phenomena as thoughts. That is very clear, that is very useful to hear because um, we are now referenced, referencing mental phenomena, not just physical, bodily phenomena, we're now referencing mental phenomena to the three uh, characteristics of sankharas, of all uh, determinants. Um, that's powerful because that makes it completely mobile. All of our experience is going to manifest stages, stages of arising, stages of changing while being present, and a stage of disappearing. Every phenomenon in our experience does that. Very laconic statements somewhere in the Aguttara and Nikaya says, you know, these things are the, the characteristics of all conditioned phenomena. All conditioned phenomena manifest arising. They manifest becoming different while they persist. And they manifest disappearance. Now, obviously, some of the things we like, the arising bit a little more, you know, and they're pleasant. We're particularly interested in the arising bit and in the persistent bit, uh, and we grieve a little if they disappear. Some of the things we're more interested in their disappearance, if they're unpleasant, then we're particularly keen on them making a speedy disappearance, and some sankharas do not quite deliver on that point. Uh, they take their time to disappear, even though they eventually do disappear. And, very interesting point, they do not simply persist as they are here, but they become other why they are here. Yeah? So we're, Sampajanya is something that gives us a comprehension 
of the, the dynamic of this experience. It is something that gives us, keys us in into change at a subtle level. As you may, may suspect, uh, the term jhanati to know has a familiarity with the word panya, wisdom. Yeah? The, the, the root in there, in both of them, jnya is, uh, is the same. So in some way, the Abhidhamma teachings then insist that Sampajanya basically is a sort of low-scale wisdom at work. It is a, a mobile type of wisdom that knows how to reference things. Think of sati as a spotlight. Yeah? Uh, sati is holding a flashlight onto something. Then Sampajanya is actually the, the seeing that occurs in that clear light of mindfulness. That may not be apparent at the first bit, but you see, in, in early Buddhist teachings, it nowhere really says that mindfulness makes us free. It nowhere really says that mindfulness takes away our anger. It nowhere really says that mindfulness is all it takes for us to become liberated of the things that bind our heart. It says Mindfulness is indispensable for this, but mindfulness has many friends. The two I mentioned in the beginning, atapi, yeah, ardent application, and sampajana, the referencing, uh, are just two. Yeah. There's a little more in there. But these two are very, very crucial. Now, how does sampajanya support sati? We'll have to talk about sati on some, some other evening. But if sati is establishing the relationship, that's maybe the key ingredient of sati. It is relational. It makes that something sensitive over here connects to something that can be felt over there, that can be met, that can be engaged with, that can be contacted yeah? bodily, cognitively, uh, sensorially, in, in whatever way. So sati establishes the relationship and sampajanya actually references that relationship. It references this back to, say, ethics. Yeah? It references this back to purpose. It references this back to effectiveness. It references my relationship I have established with the help of sati into the bigger field of my values, for example. So while it would be possible to just be in relationship with something without having any outside relationship, I'm just, you know, I'm just aware of what arises. Sounds beautiful. That's a good thing to be aware of what arises, but that in itself is not at all transformative. Yeah? You, can be, you can be aware of something as they arise until you're blue in your face. Some things you need to understand more deeply than just after they're arising before you can actually transform. You are free as you are aware of them, as they arise. You are free in that moment. This is true. But you do not necessarily stop them from arising again. Yeah? As you may have noticed in your practice, and some of you are doing this for a, a number of years, uh, there are things that change quickly. <clears throat> but there are things that, doesn't seem, that don't seem to change so quickly. Yeah? So it's, sometimes it's the ones who do not change that seem somehow more disturbing in the long run because it's obvious because they don't change 
which we know is not true because everything changes. But if things don't seem to change, it means they reconstellate somewhere under the, under the surface. They reconstellate in an area that my sati doesn't have immediate access to. And all I can do is being aware as they arise. But I don't, I don't reach the roots of them. And for that reaching of the roots, I need a wisdom component. Sometimes that wisdom component has to do with investigation. Yeah. You may recall one of the images of sati is the image of a, a, a surgeon having a patient delivered that is um, injured by an arrow. Shaft is broken off, but the arrowhead is sticking in the man, uh, and it's not visible anymore. So the surgeon uses an instrument called a probe and probes into the wound to ascertain the place, the size, and the depth of that arrowhead in our man. The idea is that when he knows how big it is, what shape it has, and how deep it goes, with the help of that probe, you know, this is a slightly painful image, isn't it? Yeah. With the help of that probe, the surgeon arrives at an understanding that is not possible to arrive at through his eyes only. In other words, he, he gets at what is hidden. Uh, and with that information, he can then minimally invasively do the surgery and remove the arrowhead and wash out the poison, as we are told. So sati is likened to that probe. It's just one of the images. And for more images, we need another evening. But one of the images is clearly in an almost poignant way, probing that which is not apparent to the eyes, that which is hidden. And this investigative quality, which you find echoed in many different levels in Buddhist teaching, there are many terms for this, but is already there in sati. One aspect of sati is that exploratory edge, yeah? being at an edge where I don't quite know what it is, where I don't quite have words and categories and neat understandings. And in some way, Sampajanya helps that by referencing this inquiry, this pre-verbal inquiry, that is capable of actually touching into the roots, you know, together with Sampajanya, and transforming the unwholesome into the wholesome. That's an interesting other definition at some point. Uh, scattered in other suttas, we are taught that Sampajanya is one of the things that help us transform the wholesome, uh, the unwholesome into the wholesome. There are a few other images for Sampajanya. One, an interesting one, <laughs> slightly surprising, is that how um, to recall the process of how you have become born, including your own pregnancy. Right to birth, you know. Maybe we have perinatal specialists in here, so be an interesting one. Having a recall of clear comprehension of your own pregnancy and your own birth. That's an interesting one. Then uh, at one stage, Sampajanya is referred to deliberateness. Quite clearly, it is referred to the quality of deliberateness in, say, in uttering a lie. You know, somebody is... Um, an untruth when spoken with Sampajanya or with Sampajana, Sampajana Musavada is a definition of wrong speech. So it's a deliberate lie. That's an interesting little notion, huh?
the quality of deliberateness suddenly being added there. So it's a knowing that is self-reflective. And then we have another passage in the Yetivuttaka speaks that clearly knowing or clearly comprehending means I'm, makes me capable of following the advice of a good friend. So it is something that enables me to emulate, to acknowledge goodness and to bring about what it takes for me to emulate the, the wholesome advice of a well-intended Kalyanamitta, of a good friend. For me, maybe the most crucial one of all these, none of them is a clean, you know, textbook definition of Sampajanya, but they give us, the, all these examples give us a feel for what kind of mobile type of knowing, wisdom is a big word, but it goes definitely in this direction, some savvy yeah, in how to move with the information my mindfulness brings about, how to proceed not just mindfully, but also in a direction that has to do with the goals I have established as being the purpose of my practice or the goals of my life or the needs of my current situation. Yeah. So Sampajanya is a, an orienting quality. I, I think I spoke to you already about using the Satipatthanas not just as a meditation exercise, which uh, is well documented, but also using the Satipatthanas as a type of orientation in what can be the comp confusing complexity of our experiential stuff. Yeah? That's one of the things we become so aware of, is when we sit still, so much is happening. So, so much is happening. Any moment, so much is happening. Contact is happening, pasa is happening, vedana is happening, feeling tone is happening, sanya is happening, perception is happening, manasikara is happening, attention is happening, sanjetana is happening, intentionality is happening. Yeah? Every moment, if you think nothing is happening here, I'm bereft of entertainment here in this forest refuge, what could I possibly do? Well, you could attend to what is already happening, and I tell you, a lot is happening. Most of you know that a lot is happening. Sometimes it can feel nothing is happening. But most of us, most of the time, are highly aware that the closer we pay attention, the more we become aware of what already is happening and how challenging it is to actually identify an individual aspect and take it out and inspect it more closely. Or try to rather than run through the whole carousel of, say, satipatthanas or dependent arising or, you know, play the monkey I told you of this morning, uh, rather than just race through the whole forest, just kind of hang on to this branch we got hold here and just kind of be with that and see what it does to my hand and to my body and what it makes me feel like. And, you know, it is difficult to do that. And Sampajanya helps us to orient, asks a few questions. The four commentarial interpretation of Sampajanya asks very clear question. What am I trying to do here? What is the purpose of this? What is my goal here? Is it working? Am I attuned, appropriate, effective? 
what is clearly my practice? How can I turn this into a practice? How can I be with this imperfect as I am and not create a self out of it? Now, those would be four examples that come after these four definitions of Sampajanya. The Sampajanyas here, as we learn from them from the suttas, say, what is the body doing? What is it feeling? What is it, how is it oriented in space? What is its tone? What is its vitality? What is its posture? What are, are its sensations? The yeah. um, Sampajanya that is concerned with establishing the characteristics of change yeah, can notice what is arising, what is changing while it's here, what is disappearing. Yeah. Not just of bodily nature, but of our thoughts, of our perceptions, of our uh, feelings. When does a state change? Yeah. We're very good at beginning new stuff. Yeah. Changes that bring us new things. Generally, our perceptual apparatus picks up on that. We have an evolutionary bias that favors new things. Because new things are potentially very pleasant or potentially very dangerous. So our nature has kind of geared us with a lot of involuntary attention that is basically available for new things. But who has ever stopped? You know, when, when it comes to stopping, we're not so good. Who has ever noticed the stopping of being sad? You know, where does my sadness just taper off into kind of normal? We tend to not notice the, the disappearance of things as much as we tend to notice the beginning of things. Even the, the, even the, the disappearance of unpleasant things tend to be somehow lost in a blur. It takes quite a studied and orchestrated effort to actually attend with mindfulness and, the, and clear comprehension to say to the ending of things, to the, the fading of things. We're not even speaking of proper cessation, we're just thinking of okay when does my hunger really recede and I'm just kind of finishing to finish my plate rather than to satiate my hunger or to quench my thirst. We're not very really good at this. This takes effort to do that. So Sampajanya makes such references and says, well, <clears throat> let's, look at some, let's look at some phases you tend to screen out. Ending of bits, fading of bits. You know, the pale, becoming pale yeah, would be one term. Then we have Sampajanya, obviously, in our bodily activity, bringing some awareness to what we habitually do. And you will notice that we're quite, we're quite body obsessed in some ways. There's probably no other society that's been so keen about fitness and youth and health and good looks and sanity and uh, what, how we can tweak all this. Um, and we obviously have to be mindful of our bodies if they're in pain, if they're deprived, if they're hurting. But in between there's a huge chunk. Even our body-obsessed time and societies don't really want to be with what's happening in the body. You know, there's more than a trifle resistance against the embodied feeling of me just being here right now. It's just not dramatic enough. Often enough, 
it fills me with light, slight unease. You know, is there, isn't there anything better? You know, is this, is this, is this all there is? You know, my precious attention wasted on just a breath, but I've done many breaths. I know how it feels to breathe. You know, there's something there that, that wants more. And that leaves the body quite eagerly for an idea, for another contact in another sensory field. And it is quite unwilling to just be resigned to be inhabit the body or, or just be embodied and be present for that embodiment. Yeah. So uh, that is a powerful teaching in itself. So we are encouraged to attend to the functions of these bodies, to the needs of this body, to the movements of these bodies, the sensations of this body outside of formal meditation practice, not just as meditation objects, but as a fluid and continual skill in establishing and re-establishing an awareness that comprehends context. It's not just this body here, it's this body in the corridor or this body in the kitchen or this body when I'm uh, dumping the garbage or something like that. It's this body and its sensations in context that Sampajanya refers to. Good, let me stop at this. I hope this gives you some ideas of where this term comes from and uh, give some relief to one of Sati's friends. Um, let us be quiet for a minute and then we finish with the recitation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.